0: Record yourself presenting, and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at Canva.com. Designed for work.
1: We know what happens if we do nothing, and that's that things get worse. And people often ask me, "Well, what's the point?" And I, and I think. Well, the point is that we know what happens if we do nothing, but also that there are millions of people around the world who are already living with the effects of climate change that they have very little responsibility for. And to do nothing means that we, we abandon them to that fate.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Milman. On this episode, Debbie talks with journalist Tatiana Schlossberg about what we can do as individuals about climate change.
1: The most important things to do are to vote and to get involved in the political process. If people want to make changes to their behavior, that's fantastic, but it can't end there.
2: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor.
1: There's nothing better at the end of a long day
0: on the road than relaxing over a delicious nightcap. That's what I love most about staying at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC Lounge serves the most divine, bespoke cocktails, featuring two signature gin tonic recipes along with local craft beers and wines. There's also a curated food menu inspired by the tapas of Spain. AC Hotels lets you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. You wouldn't know it from many media outlets, but we are in a climate crisis. Our government and governments around the world have failed to curb greenhouse gases, and the future of the natural world and humanity itself is looking very dire. To turn the tide, we will need massive action from our political leaders and our corporations. We will also have to change our individual behavior because our own consumption habits are part of the problem. Tatiana Schlossberg writes about climate and the environment for the New York Times and other outlets. Her first book is called Inconspicuous Consumption The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. And we're going to talk about that and more on today's show. Tatiana Schlossberg, welcome to Design Matters. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: Tatiana, let's start with a little levity before we get into the hard <laughs> stuff. I understand that some of your nicknames growing up <laughs> included Momina, mm. Lo- Lolita, and the Golden Child, but I also read that anybody and everybody in your family may go by the nickname Ponky.
1: Yeah, so that's all from <laughs> Marta, who was um, came to take care of my mom and my uncle when my mom was, I think, 11, and then she took care of us when we were little, too, and uh, Lola was my sister, and then I came, and so there had to be some kind of adaptation. But I, that didn't stick, I don't think, quite as much for me as for her and my brother is Momo. But <laughs> but my name, I think, lends itself pretty easily to a lot of other nicknames. So my dad called me Tatiana Teapot, Tatiana Tuna Fish, uh, Tatsi, <laughs> Tatiana so, Tuna Fish sounds really cute. Yeah, because I, I really didn't like Tuna Fish, so I guess that was... A bit of a little torture, but and then my Twitter handle is Tater Tatiana. So
0: you were officially born (laughs) Tatiana Celia Kennedy Schlossberg on May 5th. Uh, You were originally named after Tatiana Grossman, a lithographer your father worked for and admired, and your father's mother, Celia, his grandmother, grandmother Grandmother Celia. But at the time of your birth, it was reported that your family planned to call you Tanya. So, why the last
1: minute switch? Uh, well, it's Tanya is a typically a nickname for tatiana. um, uh. and it, that's what Tatiana Grossman went by. I don't think my parents wanted to name me that, but they were worried my sister wasn't going to be able to say my name. So they asked her if she could say Tatiana, and then they went with that, which i'm I'm happy about. i don't we don't do that same kind of like, I don't know. Crowdsourcing? Dim- <laughs> yeah. But it like diminutives in Russian names. Are, I mean, there's always everybody, like in all the Russian novels, everybody has 15 names with all the little nicknames. But So I think she went by Tanya, but I never have gone by that.
0: You were born into the famous Kennedy family and said this on what would have been your grandfather's 100th birthday. One of the defining relationships of my life is with someone I've never met, my grandfather,
1: President John
0: F. Kennedy. Tatiana, can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that?
1: Yeah, so because my grandfather and my grandmother and many members of my family are such iconic figures, both in sort of their image and also in their place in history, people have a lot of expectations about me or my family based on what they know. And that's a huge part of kind of our family identity and story. But it's difficult to have I mean, it's not difficult, it's a privilege in a lot of ways, but it's You know, to be so defined to the outside world by somebody I never met is, um, well, it's an interesting relationship to have and one that for me I felt I didn't have. I mean, we were very close to my Uncle Teddy, but, um, you know, I didn't really have a lot of people to ask about that because my mom was so young when my grandfather died. And so for me, I really explored that relationship and what it meant for me in terms of my identity and my place in the world by studying history and, you know, both by trying to learn about my grandparents that way, but also I know that they both loved history and loved studying history and sort of trying to imagine for myself how our interpretations might have differed based on the times we lived in and learning more about the kind of the eras and patterns that fascinated him.
0: I've read that your parents, Caroline Kennedy, and the artist and digital pioneer Edwin Schlossberg, who's also been on our show we were determined to raise you in a
1: home that really strove for normalcy. Would you say that was successful? Um, <laughs> well, you know my dad. Um, I wouldn't say he's n- normal, but um, <laughs> we were, I, I hope, raised to believe that, you know, who our my parents are, my grandparents were, that I didn't make us special des- or deserving of any kind of special treatment and that we had to still work hard for whatever we wanted to do. And, you know, even if people think that we m- might be where we are because of connections, at least we would be able to know for ourselves that we had worked hard enough to at least belong there too. I think that was really important for me and for my siblings, but also my dad is so, um, I mean, the world that he lives in is a completely different world from that. And um, I mean, grew up completely differently here in New York and as an artist and. And so I think having the balance of those two things was really important for all of us. And, I mean, it's not as well known to the rest of the world as my mom's side, but um, something to be equally proud of is all the work that he's done.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, you
1: know, I'm a huge fan. (laughs) When you were eight years
0: old, you saw the musical (laughs) 1776. And got, quote, unhealthily obsessed with the Revolutionary Era. (laughs) Why so?
1: (laughs) Well, I just really liked the musical, I guess. And I don't know if I had been especially interested in history before then. But I, I guess, you know, it was sort of in the water with my family and all that. But... Yeah, I just, like, became—we got the CD from the musical, and I became totally obsessed and learned all the words, and I still know them all, and tortured my family, trying to get them to listen to it in every single car ride. Of course, knowing now what I know about American history, it's, of course, not a totally accurate representation and leaves a lot of things out, but it made it seem really exciting and, like, the lives of real people. And I guess, you know, I mean, I was only in second grade, but I hadn't seen that before. And so I haven't lost that since then.
0: So full disclosure... I played Betsy Ross in my high school production of 1776. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> if I felt more confident about my singing voice, I'd ask if you wanted to do a duet, but I won't.
1: But but I could. Wow. <laughs> Especially why well, all the words. There are not a lot of other people in the world who can say that, so... Well, I'm that's one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to ask you about it, because I'm like,
0: wow, somebody else knows about this musical I had a starring role in in high school. So as an aside on the subject, I, I also laughed when I read how you brought the following to life in the Yale University Herald. This is what you wrote. Unlike most Yale students, I didn't return from spring break with a glowing tan and tales of my wild and crazy times on TRL's spring break in Cancun where I made out with Carson Daly. I didn't do a reach-out trip and save half the world while also having a global blast with my schoolmates. No. I stewed in my own pallor and self-pity and helped no one. I went to Colonial Williamsburg <laughs> with just my mom.
1: <laughs> you were oh, you uh, really dug deep through the Herald archives to <laughs> find that one. <laughs> well, you were hilariously less than impressed. Have you lost your
0: love for the revolutionary era at this point?
1: No, it's it's not that I've lost it. I've just become more interested in other things. It was more like I didn't have the same <laughs> so <laughs> boring, but I didn't have the same spring break as my brother and sister that year. And so my mom and I We have done a lot of history trips together. I mean, we used to do them with my extended family, and we went to Civil War battlefields and Valley Forge and Fort McHenry and lots of other places, and then she and I kind of struck out on our own and went elsewhere. So we went to Colonial Williamsburg on that trip and Richmond. I mean, truly, those were the spring breaks that other people were having, and then I was taking photos for a photography class that I was taking at the time, and interviewing people for a, an art, a different article that I was working on for a journalism class at school. I mean, what was so amazing to me about Colonial Williamsburg and about a lot of these other sort of historical reenactment places that I've visited, like Mystic Seaport and Old Sturbridge Village, a lot of the people there don't know anything about the history. And um, I think in Colonial Williamsburg, it's really... I mean, we asked the kids, well, what's your favorite part or what's the most interesting thing? And they like the maze, which isn't, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it was, you know, to be in this place, you know, which is really important in terms of the revolution and independence, but also there's the House of Burgesses and like the Virginia Constitution, but then also slavery. And, um, you know, there aren't black reenactors there and... Or if, you know, they are, but then they were referred to as servants and people kind of really gloss over that history. And and the same was true in in many of those other places like Surbridge Village is set in 1838, but there's not really any talk of abolition there, even though it's in Massachusetts where that would be happening. And so I'm sort of interested in that kind of willful suspension of belief or knowledge and what we're kind of willing to gloss over.
0: You said you were first exposed to the subject of climate change from an early age, when when did the notion of what was happening on the planet first impact you and, and get you thinking about what that meant?
1: Well, I remember learning about it in science class in school and in middle school. But I think in terms of the geopolitical situation and what was actually happening on the planet when I saw an inconvenient truth, which I guess was in high school. And I'm, I think a lot, a lot of people my age, around my age, that was really a big realization that this was a huge problem. And I, I think for a long time myself, and it seems like lots of other people, like we saw that movie, we were totally distraught, and then life went on, and, and not a lot of other things happened, and so that was kind of the, you know, some of the early times that that I was thinking about it, and it was always something that I assumed that I cared about, or would want a politician to mention, and um, but didn't really spend a lot more time thinking about it, you know, as a hopefully relatively informed and politically liberal person in a politically liberal family, then you assume that you that's something that you care about, but kind of not really looking at it too much more closely than that.
0: Uh, but you have. But
1: now I have. Yeah, but at the time. I yes. Think, yeah.
0: You went to Yale. You got your Bachelor of Arts degree in history, um, but you also became the editor-in-chief of The Herald at Yale. Did you think that journalism might be a serious career for you at that time?
1: I did, yeah. I mean, I think I really liked writing and I really, I mean, some of my best friends from college and the most fun that I had was working on the newspaper and um, and I really got a lot out of it and I didn't know what else I would be qualified to do <laughs> because I had I had also worked for a summer in the editorial department of the New York Times and then as a reporter on the Vineyard Gazette. And so I felt like I did have some experience, but it wasn't an especially easy time to get a job in journalism, but I, I liked getting to do that. And I mean, I remember when I was working at the New York Times and for editorial as an intern, I was like, I can't believe people get paid to read and write all day long. That seemed like something that I wanted to pursue, but I didn't know what it, that would look like.
0: After getting your bachelor's, you got a job as a reporter at the New Jersey newspaper, The Record. Your first byline piece, I believe, was about a 71-year-old who got struck by lightning at a soccer game. Um, how did you first get that job and, and
1: that beat? I wasn't specifically on the struck by lightning beat, but there were a lot of um, <laughs> small news items like that that I ended up writing. But I graduated and I didn't have a job, but I had... This woman who was was at the New York Times and was my mentor, and she – somebody – a different editor from the New York Times had recently started as the editor-in-chief of the Bergen record. And so she said I should go there um, to try to get a job as a local reporter. And so I went out there and did a trial, and that maybe is one that story from. They offered me a job, which I took, and then I started covering five towns in northern New Jersey, which I, none of which I'd been to before, and were all kind of pretty small, sort of suburban town bedroom communities, I guess, um, right, like on the border of New Jersey and New York.
0: You went on to write about everything from Hurricane Sandy to stolen. Bulldogs, to the decline of penmanship (laughs) in America, to serious crime pieces. And for your work, you were given the Wilson R. Barton Rookie of the Year Award and won second place in the New Jersey Press Association's Best First Year Reporter designation. (laughs) Um, What did you make of your time at The Record?
1: It was the best training that I could have gotten because I, I remember getting there and well, what they said to me was, you know, here are your towns. You have five towns. You need to write three to five stories a week. If we have to assign you stories, you're not doing your job. So, you know, if I don't come back with the three to five stories a week, everybody knows who's responsible for that. And learning that skill of how to find a story, you know, who to talk to, and how to craft that is a real skill that I didn't learn in college journalism. And I mean, I had a bit of it at when I worked at the Vineyard Gazette, but I mainly got assigned articles. And so, you know, that experience of walking into these towns where I didn't know anybody, no one had really been covering them, so there wasn't there wasn't a lot to look at in terms of what had been going on there and what were the issues in the town. And, you know, getting really comfortable and just embarrassing yourself and talking to strangers. And I remember during Hurricane Sandy there was gas rationing in New Jersey. And so it was like every other day you know, depending on your license plate number, you could get gas. And so people would be lined up on the road, and I, they were like, we need a story on people getting gas. And so I would just have to knock on the windows of people's cars as they were lining up to get gas. Nobody wants to talk to you when they're doing that and trying to figure out how to ingratiate yourself and not look like an idiot and then come back with the story was a really important skill. And I, I couldn't have worked at the New York Times or done anything else if I hadn't had that job. Was the bulldog ever found? Um, I got moved off that story uh, because I I wrote that because I was doing early morning cop duty. And so I think as the weeks went on, I think it was recovered, but it was like it was recovered and it was in the Poconos or something and someone was trying to resell it, but they found it. I couldn't believe (laughs) that I had to spend many, (laughs) many days writing about that. (laughs) Do you ever miss being out there on the beat? Writers
0: I know uh, that have worked at newspaper jobs have described it as the best of times and the worst of times, but something they wouldn't trade for anything.
1: Yeah, I definitely wouldn't trade it. I mostly don't miss it. I mean, there's some of that absurdity that you can't get doing most other things. And also, it's really exciting when you are in a big story or, I mean, I remember working on Hurricane Sandy. It felt really important. I mean, sometimes writing about local penmanship in decline uh, didn't feel that important, but something like Hurricane Sandy, um, you know, it felt like we really that, that really mattered to people. And you can see how important local journalism is in situations like that. And so it's especially sad that papers like The Record are going out of business all over the place.
0: After working at The Record, you got your master's degree in history from the University of Oxford, where I understand you began reading a lot of environmental history. Mm-hmm. What were you hoping to do professionally at that time?
1: As much as I loved my job at The Record, I was trying to find a way out. <laughs> so I applied to graduate school, which was something that I always had thought that I wanted to do just because I loved being in school so much and I loved studying history. And I wasn't sure if, you know, I would want to get a PhD or anything or something like that. But I thought that this whatever skills that I got in graduate school would likely transfer to, you know, if I wanted to continue doing journalism, because it's the same kind of thing of, you know, researching and writing and figuring out how to piece together a narrative. So I wasn't sure. I mean, I didn't have a goal in mind for what would happen. But I, the slight loophole was that if I was a student, then I could apply for the New York Times internship um, program, and which I had not done during college, um, because I didn't think that I was good enough. So when I was at Oxford, I was able to apply to do that.
0: And you got it. And I got it. (laughs) After interning for about nine months, I believe you got a job on the Metro desk, Mm -hmm. and then later the science desk. And at the time, you stated that no one was really talking about climate in New York. You had covered Hurricane Sandy, as you mentioned, as a reporter in New Jersey, and became interested in looking at people's recovery and how they understood climate change in their own lives. Tatiana, is it true that at the time you, you were there, there were only four people covering climate at the paper?
1: Yeah, when I started, I there were four people on the science desk who were writing about climate change. And I mean, it comes up in other places, but those, those are the people who were kind of dedicated to writing about climate change and the environment.
0: You stated that you think your background of not being a science person was helpful in your position.
1: Well, I hope so. In um, what way? In what way? <laughs> well, I think not having the prior knowledge made me able to understand or hopefully know how other people might approach this topic and i think that in climate journalism in in particular there's a lot of assumed knowledge on the part of the reader like that articles kind of assume that we all know how solar energy works and what a wind turbine actually does and that's not necessarily true you know we if we care about this topic we know that those things are important but we don't actually necessarily know why or what it means if something is carbon neutral or renewably powered and and how all those agreements work. I mean, I had, you know, taken science in school and but I think I was able to tr- kind of translate that to the, an audience that might be more like me or an audience of people my age who who care about this topic but also are overwhelmed by the amount of information, all the trade-offs, the, you know, the science of it. And I think that Science and math, I think, can be really intimidating to people because they assume, like, oh, if I wasn't good at that in school or it wasn't my thing, I won't be able to understand it, and then they don't try. And so trying to kind of disguise things that are science in in other ways hopefully is appealing to people. And I think it's – you know, it doesn't have to be intimidating, and it's not like being in school. It's just like understanding how the world around you works. I was driving recently in California with a car full of people and we passed
0: a wind turbine farm and I said, how do those things work? And no one in the car knew. Not one person <laughs> knew. Actually, there it, it almost became an argument because someone thought they knew, right. and then somebody else was like, I don't think that is. And I was like, I don't understand any of this. Um, I learned a lot reading your book, and let's discuss oh it. It's called Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. And you've said that you were not trying to lecture anybody or tell them what to do. You don't think that's your place. So Do you feel that tone and that notion is what turns so many people off the very real problem of
1: climate change, that sort of preachy, this is what you must do kind of attitude? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And um, it has been a problem that so much of the discussion about climate change has been framed as a question of personal responsibility, because I think it lets those who are actually responsible off the hook. But I think it also makes people who are interested in but maybe didn't know a lot feel like they were already doing something wrong without even knowing about it and that, you know, they feel guilty or ashamed of their behavior when we're, usually we're not in control of how th- the things that we buy and, you know, wear and eat and how we get around. And, you know, as individual consumers, we really have no control over how those things happen, especially if there's not a lot of information about how that works. And so I didn't want to be lecturing anybody because I, I'm not a moral authority here, and many of the things that are true for most readers are true for me also. I mean, I eat a lot of dairy. Um, I know with, you like ice cream. I like ice cream. Um, you know, my husband orders tons of things on Amazon, so I wanted to make it clear to readers that it's possible to care without being perfect and also that these are bigger systems than than any of us can fix by changing our own behavior and that it has to work. I mean, the changes need to happen on a big collective scale in order to really matter. And I don't think you get there by making everybody feel bad about the car that they buy or, you know, where they shop. Before we talk about the specifics of the
0: book, I do want to ask you one question about writing the book. You wrote this on Twitter about writing. You said, writing a book has taught me that it's really hard to be alone with me. (laughs) And I was wondering why you felt that way.
1: Um, (laughs) Well, hopefully it's not Actually true, but um, for the other people in my life. But I, I researched and wrote the book in a year, which is pretty short for a research book like this. And so it just was so much time in your own head trying to figure out what do I want to write about, how do I want to write it. You know, you write a sentence and so bad you hate yourself, and then you know you have to take a break and go do something else. But it's more just that process of trying to think your way through a problem, and then you get sort of trapped because you don't have another way to think about things. And that comes from talking to other people and doing more reading. But it's more just, I mean, it's a lot of time alone, which I'm pretty good at. But even so, (laughs) by, you know, month 11, uh, I was ready to take a break from being alone with me. (laughs) Initially, I read that you didn't want to read
0: about climate change before you started writing about it because it made you too anxious.
1: How did you break through that barrier? I don't know if other people have this feeling, but, you know, you see a headliner, you start reading a story, and it just sounds like everything is so terrible that – and you feel so powerless that you just don't want to keep going because you don't feel like there's anything that you can do or anything that even maybe could be done. You know, I mean intellectually I recognize that that wasn't a healthy approach to <laughs> to this problem and also that um, if there is a chance of solving this problem, then you need people telling the story and it seemed to me – you know, that hopefully I could do a good job explaining that story to, I mean, everybody, but particularly people in my generation, because we are the people who are going to have to figure out how to deal with climate change and and live in a world that's shaped by climate change. And I wanted to be a part of that.
0: Your book is a, a rather urgent call to action to ask people to stand up to climate change and environmental pollution by making simple but impactful everyday choices. It's also rather witty. It wouldn't be um, fair to not talk about this, the sort of urgency of the topic of this book, without talking about the style in which you wrote it. It's funny, it's witty, it's sometimes a little snarky. <laughs> um, what made you decide to take that approach? Because it made it such a, in,
1: in reading such a difficult topic, it actually made it fun. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad uh, that we share a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> not everybody does. But, uh, you know, I think that so much of the, the writing about climate change, again, it's so scary and um, heavy with doom um, that it didn't make me want to read about it. And so I wanted to write about it in a way that I would talk about it with if I was talking to my friends. You poke fun at yourself quite a bit. Well, you know, you I like I said, it's not easy to be alone with me, so uh, you have to pass the time somehow. But I <laughs> um, I think also it does a disservice to talk about climate change as if it's this separate, other scary thing and not something that, you know, we need to figure out how to live with this and living with it means being able to joke about it. And, you know, I'm not, I think in the book, I hope, I'm not making light of climate change no, itself. not um, at all. But more kind of a, myself and hopefully the world around me um you know if we can't figure out how to laugh like we have no chance of kind of living with this and and doing so in a way that is possible at all and so and i think you know a lot of the writing about it i don't know it doesn't um fear for me is not a powerful motivator so i kind of turn away from a lot of that style of writing and i think the bet I'm making here is that other people want to feel included and they want to feel asked to contribute and asked to be involved. And I think talking to people in a language that they understand and hopefully making that enjoyable will will be a way to do that.
0: You examine the mostly unseen and unconscious environmental impacts that we experience and are part of in four areas, the Internet and technology, food, fashion, and fuel. And you really teach readers to understand why climate change is such a complicated issue and how it really connects all of us. You talk about how streaming a movie on Netflix in New York burns coal in Virginia, how eating a hamburger in California might contribute to pollution in the Gulf of Mexico. How buying an inexpensive cashmere sweater in Chicago expands the Magnolian desert, how destroying forests from North Carolina is necessary to generate electricity in England. You really show us how everything is connected, how everyone is involved. That Netflix might no longer be a sound environmental decision would likely send a shiver down the spines of many of my listeners. Talk about
1: why that is. So that was really interesting for me to learn about because I, as somebody who didn't know a ton about how the Internet works before writing this book, I hadn't really thought that the Internet could have an environmental impact. I think, you know, partly that's the language we used to talk about it. We talk about the cloud, um, and we carry these devices in our pocket, and so they don't seem connected to Earth in that way. But um, and and we also hear so much about how the internet, is, you know, doing things electronically saves paper, and so we assume that that must be better in that way. But the internet is a it's a physical system, and you know, it's made up of modems and routers and cables and wires all over the world, and particularly in this country. It kind of follows the paths that were laid by the railroads and then telegraphs and telephone lines um, along that just because that was sort of the, an existing network that across the country. But the reason that it uses energy other than kind of sending data around is just to store data. And so m- listeners maybe have heard about like data centers or um, server farms, but that's sort of where the internet really exists and that's where most of the information is stored and increasingly stored in cloud computing, which is much more efficient than kind of the traditional server. But um, we use so much more data than we used to that the Internet is much more data intensive. So a lot of web pages now have many more videos and images, and, and that just uses a lot more data. And so it requires more energy to keep those servers on all the time and then to send and receive the data that we're asking for 24 hours a day. So because of the history of the Internet, a lot of those data centers are in Virginia, Virginia. Because it was a creation of the Department of Defense, And so then the infrastructure was kind of built out around washington, d c. And so a lot of Netflix, in particular, um, is stored on Amazon Web Services, which has a lot of data centers in Virginia and also Ohio. So it's easy to think like if I'm in New York streaming a movie that it doesn't have anything to do with coal from another part of the country because in New York we got our electricity from natural gas or hydropower, or whatever it is. But um, because of the way the internet's set up, we are all connected to that network. And so therefore, if I'm streaming a video and it's a time, you know, and even if that data center maybe is powered by wind and solar power, it's raining and or it's not windy. And so then it goes to backup power, which is coal. And so then coal is burned to provide the electricity that powers that server that sends it to me. And so, you know, whether we think about it or not, we're all kind of actively engaged in these systems. And so not to say that I think people should feel guilty about watching something on Netflix, but um, you know I don't think we need to feel individually guilty for climate change, but I do think we need to feel collectively responsible about fixing these systems and demanding that the internet is clean and that it's you know increasingly efficient. And one of the most amazing statistics to me, well, two, so one was that 70% of global internet traffic passes through one county in Virginia, in Loudoun County, and then the second one was in 2011... This is from a, a, a study that was looking at the relative energy efficiency of streaming video versus uh, watching on DVD, which required like driving to the store to buy the DVD and also the plastic production and everything to make the DVD. And at that time, it was more energy efficient to stream a video online. And in 2011, we watched 3.2 billion hours of Internet video. In 2018, we watched 114 billion hours of video. And so we're just using the Internet in a completely different way than we did less than a decade ago. And I think we all have to be increasingly aware of, of how that happens because we're ultimately responsible for it. And, it, you know, the Internet is going to be shaped by somebody's values. So it might as well be the people who care about <laughs> the, the planet. Some other interesting statistics I learned from reading your
0: book. Netflix uses up 15 percent of all the Internet bandwidth on Earth. Shoppers return 35% of the goods they buy online, which is as much as six times more than when they shop in stores. Producing polyester for clothes emits as much carbon dioxide as 185 coal-fired power plants. A single fleece garment can shed 100,000 plastic microfibers in one washing. And I believe it takes 2,900 gallons of water to make a pair of jeans.
1: That's a kind of upper limit. It can take that many. It doesn't always, yeah.
0: It's terrifying to know that our individual choices really do have so much impact. Mm -hmm. You've described the story of climate change as the story of everything. Why do you describe it that way?
1: Well, I think it's, you know, it's part of the the point that I was trying to make earlier, which is if we, you know, for people who don't think that they understand science, if you kind of silo climate change off as a science story or a nature story, you know, maybe the people who aren't as interested in those things think that it doesn't have anything to do with them. But, I mean, looking at the stuff that I wrote about in my book, you can see that. Climate change and environmental impacts and pollution and all these different global phenomenon are all embedded in the stuff that all of us use. And so, therefore, it connects to everybody. But, you know, it, it is a story about people like us and culture, the culture of consumption that we have and history, how we got to this point, and technology and food and fashion, but also business and health and politics and justice. And we're seeing these connections increasingly, I think, in the news. Politicians are talking about this sort of thing more and more how the climate changes will impact sort of every area of our lives. And so it, it, I think it's important to understand it in in its totality and also that it is a kind of total problem because, you know, we don't live anywhere else <laughs> other than here with this climate. So, You've said you approached
0: this book as a journalist and not an activist. And I'm wondering why that distinction was important to you.
1: I mean, for, for me, being a journalist, you know, means that you can report on something f- fairly and that you don't have a specific agenda in mind which I I don't think that I do other than I mean you know this is a a subject where it's pretty hard not to take a position especially in this country where the positions have been lined up such that one side agrees with the science and the facts and the other side lives on the planet where physics doesn't exist. So yeah, I do want to
0: talk to you about climate <laughs> deniers. We're going to yeah. get to that.
1: Um, but being writing about this as a journalist means that I'm not taking a position and I'm not advocating for certain policies. And, you know, I'm not saying that all fossil fuel use is bad because, you know, we use fossil fuels to make fertilizer, which grows food to feed all of us. And there are plenty of uses for fossil fuels that are really important and that we currently can't do um, without them. So that's one part of it. But I also think, you know, I want to present the information to people to be able to make the decisions that they want to make and the changes that they want to make and, you know, encourage people to get involved and to learn about this topic but not to say that, you know, there's any one thing they should do. I don't consider myself an expert in that way, but I do want to make all the information that that I have available to everybody else.
0: What would be the ideal outcome for people reading your book in terms of what they might be able to do or how they could either personally or cumulatively make changes? Mm
1: -hmm. The most important things to do are to vote um, and to get involved in the political process and to vote for candidates who are talking about and making meaningful policy on these issues and then to not reelect those who don't because we don't have any time to waste. Second of all, you know, to put pressure on corporations, whether that's by boycotting or by mass tweeting or, you know, whatever it is, but to corporations that aren't at the very least transparent about their practices because we have no other way to hold them accountable other than, you know, where we decide to spend our money. And then third, um, to talk about climate change. So, Only about a third of Americans say that they talk about climate change at all with their friends and family. But once they do, they're more likely to consider it a risk and to support policies to mitigate it. And so I think um, talking about climate change, also listening when other people talk about climate change and, again, not lecturing people, I think that those are all really important things to do. And, you know, I think any personal behavioral changes are are great. There are certain changes that I've made just because I want to be the kind of person who acts on new information as I acquire it and lives in line with my values, not because I think that will be enough to change, but because it, you know, it is a place to start. And so if people want to make changes to their behavior, that's fantastic, but it can't end there. Is it for you to track your own electrical output and then also track your friends? (laughs) I did. Well, I was testing all of our devices um, to see how much electricity, you know, like uh, my cable box, for instance, uses when it's on versus when it's off. So I did uh, check a lot of our devices and uh, some of our friends. And, you know, people don't actually like when you go over to their house and unplug all their stuff. Really? But, yeah. I know. It's shocking. Funny. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Somebody had to do it. Um, you said you went through the five stages of environmental grief in writing this book. Can you talk about what they are and how you managed through them?
1: Well, I sort of wrote that... <laughs> <laughs> as a joke, but I do think it's true. So I'm not quite sure exactly what they are. I know there's like depression. Denial, anger, yeah. trying to use less plastic, right. depression, determination. Yeah, I think that that about covers it. I mean, you know, it it's a really serious and depressing topic and it is hard to, I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons why it's hard to be with me is because I've decided to write about climate change, but to constantly be reading about bad things that are happening and changes that need to be made and the scale at which they need to happen and how much they're not happening is is really difficult. But I don't think, you know, I think we know what happens if we do nothing. And that's that things get worse. And people often ask me, well, what's the point? And I, and I think, well, the point is that we know what happens if we do nothing. But also that there are millions of people around the world who are already living with the effects of climate change that they have very little responsibility for. And they are primarily poor black brown and indigenous women in the global south and you know to do nothing means that we we abandon them to that fate and i don't know if people are okay with with doing that or not but i think you know framing it that way in terms of other people and and their suffering and climate change is a justice issue and i talk about it like that in the book but i think it's always important to remind ourselves of that and and what that actually means. And that means that other people will die and their lives will be made much more difficult because of the decisions decisions that we make and the actions that we don't take.
0: As someone who's worked in packaging and branding nearly my entire (laughs) life, I was surprised to learn that there's no food date label standardization, which contributes significantly to why we waste so much food. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, I mean, I'm sure most people are familiar with labels on their food like use by, sell by, best by. But those dates actually don't mean anything legally or scientifically. Like they don't say anything about the kind of safety of a product. It's more about the kind of the shelf life or when the producer of the goods think that it might be at its best. There's kind of no law governing this and Governmental agencies have been talking about labeling food and having some kind of standardization since the seventies, and it has never happened. So, I mean, there are some laws about. I think infant formulas has a law um, That's a regulation regulated, yeah, yeah, and some states have laws about like milk and cream, but they're all different, and we interpret that as consumers that that means something about. Again, like the safety or the quality of the product. And so people will often just throw things away once that date has passed, when things are perfectly good and edible. And so we just waste a lot more food than we we need to just because we're not bothering to smell or taste. Well, it's interesting. I'm always astounded by the level of forced or
0: planned obsolescence Mm -hmm. in the use of technology or in fashion where you see it every season. Right. Um, But I didn't realize how much food was impacted by this as well now. Yeah. Um, So for people that are looking at the buy or sell-by dates, Mm -hmm. do you recommend that they try the food before they throw it away? What is is a way that we can get around that or hack the system, so to speak?
1: I mean, for some things it's hard, like – I understand people don't want to take risks with chicken, for instance, but mm. um, we do waste about 30 to 40 percent of the food that we produce in, in this country. And that means that we waste a ton of resources and energy and land and therefore emit a lot of carbon dioxide, both in the production of the food, but also in as it degrades, it releases methane which is another greenhouse gas. So I think you don't really need to look at that <laughs> at the dates on food. Like you can just – I mean if it's milk, you can smell it or taste it and not just – or especially things that – you know, if you have cereal that's like – Oh, shelf-stable products. Yeah, they'll last till they'll the last end of forever. time. Yeah, yes. so um, I mean something might be stale, but that's because it's open. And, but if you have like an unopened box of something or a can, I mean you that's You can take fine. it with you to your funeral. Yeah, unless it's – well, the cans I guess you have – risk of botulism if the cans look kind of inflated then don't eat them but for for the most part you can be pretty sure that you're not gonna get really sick from the food and that you should just kind of smell and, and and then like feel it or look at it or taste it and that's probably the best way to do it
0: how do you manage climate change deniers
1: you know I don't actually have to talk to climate change deniers that much because the people who come to see me talk about my book, pretty much are all in. Um, What do I say to my uncle? (laughs) You know, I don't know. It's really hard because, you know, like I said, those people live in a world where you can pick and choose your science, and I would be surprised if those people then also didn't completely change their mind about science when it came to medicine and their own personal health. So it's really more about convenience and increasingly your political beliefs because— I remember I wrote about a uh, study a couple of years ago that showed that even among Republicans with a high level of science knowledge, only 23 percent were willing to say that climate change was caused by human activity, even regardless of their level of science knowledge. So that just goes to show that people's political identity are um, – I mean, that's changing how you see the world. I mean, the the problem is that climate change as a term has become so politically loaded, but the issues – actually are pretty unifying if you think about it in terms of clean air and clean water and the ability to, you know, have your home survive a storm or a a fire or a drought or something like that. So what I say or what I, I hope that there are ways to talk about this where you don't need to bring in those political terms. I mean, climate change is making life harder for everybody, whether you're you know, somebody living near the coast um, and your town is flooding when they're high tide or you're a farmer in the Midwest who's experiencing record levels of flooding and then you can't plant your, your corn and soybeans. Like you don't need to talk about whether that's climate change, whether that's caused by burning of fossil fuels and carbon dioxide emissions to know that that's not working for anybody and that's making life more difficult for everybody, both in terms of how we plan for the future, but also, again, like clean air and clean water and, and things that we take for granted. and so. I think or I hope that if we talk about these issues in that way, I mean, nobody wants to live in a polluted environment. So I think that there are a lot of places where we can unify around this. And it's really too bad that the science of it has become so politicized.
0: One of the things that really struck me as I was reading your book was the involvement of individuals. And there's no doubt that we have to look to the corporations. We have to look to our leaders to lead us mm-hmm. to a better way of living together. But one thing that I was really struck by in my own practice, years ago, I was working with one of the major paper makers in the in the world, and we were working on the redesign of toilet paper packaging. And they had come up with an innovation to create toilet paper without the paper roll in the middle, right. without the the Powerboard insert. Thing. yeah. We did a lot of research with people about toilet paper. What kind of toilet paper do people want? What is something they will accept or something that they won't? And one area that we were investigating was the use of recycled paper mm-hmm. because this is not something that you're ever presenting to the public. To um, it's It's a very personal decision, right. but it's also something that really can make a difference. And what we found was that people really wanted white, bleached toilet paper. (laughs) And it was infuriating because people say they want to save the world and the planet and they want to do good. Um, They just didn't feel that their personal choice in toilet paper made that much difference. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to excuse themselves in buying bleached white toilet paper rather than recycled brown paper because they wanted something soft, in right. their private parts. <laughs> but it is really important that we all can make a unified individual difference. Mm-hmm. I often say that if somebody didn't like peach-flavored powdered iced tea, which sounds rather heinous, it wouldn't be sold. Right. People are buying it. People are, corporations make things that people will buy. Right. They don't want to make things that people won't buy. Right. There's very few products on the shelves, if any, that are there altruistically, but the corporation feels it has a soft spot in their heart for them. So, how can we get people to realize that every decision we make makes a difference in the grand scheme of a life mm-hmm. and in the grand scheme of the world?
1: Well, you read my book and then you know <laughs> all the answers. But um, no, it's, you know, I that's a real like profound disconnect, which is that people again, you know, people tell me all the time like that they really care about climate change and what and what can they do. And then if I say something that they don't like to hear, then they're mad at me. Um, <laughs> well, I know that you said that you wanted people to
0: be upset at the end of reading your book because yeah. then you knew you did something right.
1: Exactly. But you know, I mean, when it's my friends and they're like, "Well, why is Zara bad?" and then I'll explain it to them, and then they're all huffy with me, and they're like, "Well, this is from Zara, and you know, uh, <laughs> don't tell Tatiana." Um, so, <laughs> which is, you know, on a personal level, makes it hard for me to go to dinner parties. But um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I think it's people don't necessarily connect themselves to this larger problem. And that's why I do think it is so important to kind of trace the history of all of this stuff and and the connections between toilet paper and carbon sequestration or toilet paper in the Amazon or, you know, wherever it is that the, that the trees are coming from. Um but i also think that's why i and and you're right that you know corporations and politicians don't make changes unless we as consumers and citizens demand them and so that's why this collective action is really important but i also think if you look at i think light bulbs are a really good example so if you got rid of there are regulations that existed that got rid of incandescent bulbs and had only LED bulbs on the market, then it's not up to the consumer to make the choice between the inefficient incandescent bulb and the really efficient LED bulb. That makes a huge difference if all of the light bulbs are LED. And so if you did the same kinds of things with toilet paper where it was, you know, you had to have whatever 60% recycled content or something like that, then you remove the responsibility from the consumer. And I think ultimately that's where we need to move to because it is really hard as a consumer, to make a sustainable choice. And I think we've put too much pressure on people to shop responsibly, and we can't shop our way out of this problem. And we usually don't have access to all the information that the companies do. And so it is, I do think it's on governments and corporations to make all of the products sustainably so that therefore we don't have to make that choice. Um, because it, if something is unsustainable, that means it literally can't be sustained. <laughs> and so we, you know we shouldn't be making things that are unsustainable. What are
0: some things listeners can do, big or small, aside from voting, Mm -hmm. which they
1: must do, that can really make an impact? Um, You know, I think the things that we've heard for a long time, like eating less red meat and other animal products is important, not flying or taking public transportation. Those things are really important. And then, you know, for me personally, I think in terms of what I buy, There are a few companies that I feel like I can trust, but for the most part, I think the best thing to do is to consume less, especially with clothing because so much of fashion is kind of wrapped up in greenwashing. So I think, you know, buy fewer things, wear them as long as you can, you know, not just buying something because you want it, but thinking, do you really need that? And I know that that's hard because clothes are a form of personal expression, but, you know, I personally get a lot of satisfaction from just, looking at clothes online and imagining what my life might be like if I own them and then, <laughs> and then moving on to my, you know, normal boring outfits. Um, but I do think really consuming less and sort of being more mindful and conscientious about this, the things that we do have and and what do we actually need, because we mostly don't need as much as we have, you know, particularly in the United States. Uh, I
0: have two last questions okay. for you, one of which has something to do with actually, uh, taking some type of public transportation. Um, But this is about uh, why you like to do what you do. You've said, I would like to stay writing in this area because I do think that not only is climate change the most important story in the world, it's a story about everything. I get to write about health, business, science, technology, history, culture, medicine, and nature.
1: So Tatiana, what are you going to focus your lens on next? You know, it's a good question. I would like to keep writing about climate change and the environment. I think, um, you know, if people read the book, they'll see that I do have a strong interest in environmental justice, and that's something that I would like to keep writing about. I recognize that people are really interested in solutions, and so I don't know if, if that's kind of what I'll focus on. I think a really interesting problem I see developing is the trade offs between building clean energy infrastructure and conservation because a lot, I mean, we, you know, solar farms and wind turbines or transmission lines take up a lot of space. And how do you kind of balance the sequestration potential of land with the need for clean energy and, you know, how some of these projects pit these communities that usually are politically aligned against each other. So that's something I'm really interested in. I'm really interested also in you know, how we plan for the future. So one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, so I I heard at a lecture that um, two-thirds of the cities and urban areas that will exist by 2050 don't exist yet. And mainly they will be in India, Nigeria, and China. And about 1.3 million, or the urban population currently grows by 1.3 million people every week you know, as cities grow, they need more space, that space often that they're moving into is agricultural land. And then there are fewer people, there are more people in general, but fewer people growing food, more cement, which is a huge emitter of greenhouse gases, you know, more need for transportation and infrastructure and water. And how do you kind of how do you build a world um, and plan cities for that many people? So thinking about those kinds of problems is really interesting to me. But I don't so yeah, hopefully something in one of those areas.
0: Big, big, daunting, yeah. really urgent problems. So my last question is this. Is it true you met your husband in an Uber
1: pool? <laughs> no. No, and I so regret putting that as a joke in the book. Um, I <laughs> so I wrote about Uber <laughs> in the book because – and I wrote about Uber pool. And Uber pool in all of their marketing, they talk about how there's so many couples who met in an Uber pool and got married. And so I wrote in the chapter about Uber – I did not do this, and I footnoted our wedding announcement. <laughs> and, then, and then in the the acknowledgments as a joke, I wrote that, you know, to thank you to my husband, George, whom I met in an Uber pool. And now everywhere I go, people ask me about meeting my husband in an Uber <laughs> pool. So this is just a cautionary tale to people who think they can joke in writing about climate change. Um, and people do read the acknowledgments. People do. I think that everybody reads the acknowledgments, which is, like, I think a lot of people— haven't finished the book but they've read the acknowledgments um no we met in college we did not start dating till after we graduated and so unfortunately for all the listeners out there and for uber pool we did not meet in an uber pool and i don't really take uber (laughs) so so that's the other reason why it's not true but um but he he does well actually i believe he currently uses juno
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tatiana Schlossberg, thank you for writing such an important book and thank you for helping to educate me. I came away from your book feeling like I had my mind blown from everything that I'd read and learned that I never knew. And I do believe that while we do need to look to our leaders and our corporations to help us create a future that's better for everyone, everyone has to be involved.
1: I agree. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Tatiana Schlossberg's new book is called Inconspicuous Consumption, the environmental impact you don't know you have. If you'd like to get more information about Tatiana, you can go to her website, TatianaSchlossberg.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to a podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.